Chapter twenty two of the Vicar of Wakefield. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith. Chapter twenty two. Offences are easily pardoned where there is love at the bottom. The next morning I took my daughter behind me and set out on my return home. As we travelled along I strove by every persuasion to calm her sorrow and fears, and to arm her with resolution to bear the presence of her offended mother. I took every opportunity from the prospect of a fine country through which we passed, to observe how much kinder heaven was to us than we to each other, and that the misfortunes of nature's making were very few. I assured her that she should never perceive any change in my affections, and that during my life, which yet might be long, she might depend upon a guardian and an instructor. I armed her against the censures of the world, showed her that books were sweet unreproaching companions to the miserable, and that if they could not bring us to enjoy life, they would at least teach us to endure it. The hired horse that we rode was to be put up that night at an inn by the way, within about five miles of my house, and as I was willing to prepare my family for my daughter's reception, I determined to leave her that night at the inn and to return for her, accompanied by my daughter Sophia, early the next morning. It was night before we reached our appointed stage. However, after seeing her provided with a decent apartment and having ordered the hostess to prepare proper refreshments, I kissed her and proceeded towards home. And now my heart caught new sensations of pleasure the nearer I approached that peaceful mansion. As a bird that has been frightened from its nest, my affections outwent my haste and hovered round my little fireside with all the rapture of expectation. I called up the many fond things I had to say, and anticipated the welcome I was to receive. I already felt my wife's tender embrace, and smiled at the joy of my little ones. As I walked but slowly, the night waned apace. The labourers of the day were all retired to rest, the lights were out in every cottage, no sounds were heard but the shrilling cock, and the deep-mouthed watchdog at hollow distance. I approached my little abode of pleasure, and before I was within a furlong of the place our honest mastiff came running to welcome me. It was now near midnight that I came to knock at my door. All was still and silent, my heart dilated with unutterable happiness, when, to my amazement, I saw the house bursting out in a blaze of fire, and every aperture red with conflagration. I gave a loud convulsive cry and fell upon the pavement insensible. This alarmed my son, who had till this been asleep, and he, perceiving the flames, instantly waked my wife and daughter, and all running out, naked and wild with apprehension, recalled me to life with their anguish. But it was only to objects of new terror, for the flames had by this time caught the roof of our dwelling, part after part continuing to fall in, while the family stood with silent agony looking on, as if they enjoyed the blaze. I gazed upon them and upon it by turns and then I looked round for my two little ones, but they were not to be seen. "'Oh, misery! Where?' cried I. "'Where are my little ones?' "'They are burnt to death in the flames,' says my wife calmly, "'and I will die with them.' That moment I heard the cry of my babies within, who were just wakened by the fire, and nothing could have stopped me. "'Oh, where? Where are my children?' cried I, rushing through the flames and bursting the door of the chamber in which they were confined. "'Where are my little ones?' "'Here, dear papa, here we are!'
cried they together, while the flames were just catching the bed where they lay. I caught them both in my arms, and snatched them through the fire as fast as possible, while just as I was got out, the roof sunk in. "'Now!' cried I, holding up my children. "'Now let the flames burn on, and all my possessions perish. Here they are, I have saved my treasure. Here, my dearest, are our treasures, and we shall yet be happy.' We kissed our little darlings a thousand times. They clasped us round the neck and seemed to share our transports, while their mother laughed and wept by turns. I now stood a calm spectator of the flames, and after some time began to perceive that my arm to the shoulder was scorched in a terrible manner. It was therefore out of my power to give my son any assistance, either in attempting to save our goods or preventing the flames spreading to our corn. By this time the neighbours were alarmed, and came running to our assistance, but all they could do was stand, like us, spectators of the calamity. My goods, among which were the notes I had reserved for my daughter's fortunes, were entirely consumed, except a box with some papers that stood in the kitchen, and two or three things more of little consequence which my son brought away in the beginning. The neighbours contributed, however, what they could to lighten our distress. They brought us clothes and furnished one of our outhouses with kitchen utensils, so that by daylight we had another, though a wretched, dwelling to retire to. My honest next neighbour and his children were not the least assiduous in providing us with everything necessary, and offering whatever consolation untutored benevolence could suggest. When the fears of my family had subsided, curiosity to know the cause of my long stay began to take place. Having therefore informed them of every particular, I proceeded to prepare them for the reception of our lost one, and though we had nothing but wretchedness now to impart, I was willing to procure her a welcome to what we had. This task would have been more difficult but for our recent calamity, which had humbled my wife's pride, and blunted it by more poignant afflictions. Being unable to go for my child myself, as my arm grew very painful, I sent my son and daughter, who soon returned supporting the wretched delinquent, who had not the courage to look up at her mother, whom no instructions of mine could persuade to a perfect reconciliation, for women have a much stronger sense of female error than men. "'Ah, madam,' cried her mother, "'this is but a poor place you have come to after such finery.' My daughter Sophie and I can afford but little entertainment to persons who have kept company with people of distinction. Yes, Miss Livy, your poor father and I have suffered very much of late, but I hope heaven will forgive you. During this reception the unhappy victim stood pale and trembling, unable to weep or to reply. But I could not continue a silent spectator of her distress, wherefore, assuming a degree of severity in my voice and manner, which was ever followed with instant submission, I entreat, woman, that my words may be now marked once for all. I have here brought you back a poor deluded wanderer. Her return to duty demands the revival of our tenderness. The real hardships of life are now coming fast upon us. Let us not therefore increase them by dissenting among each other. If we live harmoniously together, we may yet be contented, as there are enough of us to shut out the censuring world, and keep each other in countenance. The kindness of heaven is promised to the penitent, and let ours be directed by the example. Heaven, we are assured, is much more pleased to view a repentant sinner than ninety-nine persons who have supported a course of undeviating rectitude. And this is right, for that single effort by which we stop short in the downhill path to perdition is itself a greater exertion of virtue than an hundred acts of justice. End of chapter 22